I'll be reading the scriptures, 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, suffering. Do, the, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you that you are uh, an ever-present help in time of trouble. We thank you that, that um, you were um, always uh, with us. I thank you, Father, that you, um, for the great uh, cost of uh, bringing us into your kingdom. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you willingly uh, laid down your life and that you became uh, our sin, that we might become the righteousness of Christ. Lord, I pray that we would just continue worshiping you. God, I pray that um, and, uh, this passage today that you have brought uh, great encouragement and conviction to my heart. God, I pray that, um, that the people that are here today, these uh, dear, dear ones that um, are part of this body, people that are visiting, uh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would uh, change us uh, from the inside out, that we would uh, be convicted of sin, and that we would be reminded of the glorious gospel that has set us free from the power and the guilt and the penalty of sin. So, Holy Spirit, have your way with me. God, I pray that I would stand um, underneath your word. I'd stand behind it and that you would change me even as I proclaim this and that you would change us and that you would bring it deeply into our hearts for your glory and for our good. And God's people said, amen. Good morning. This is just a tad high, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work with it. Um, anyway, good morning. It's good to, good to be here. As I was um, thinking through this passage, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, the obvious title of the message is Preach the Word, where Paul um, emphatically commands, urges, charges Timothy to preach the word. And that's a charge for, for Timothy then and for every pastor um, since then. And there's, there's great application for you and I, for every, every believer, not just for pastors. And as I was thinking about this, I, I thought about the, the posture of my heart when it comes to um, learning and sitting under the teaching of the word. Uh, my wife reminded me this morning that, that we go to conferences. I went to the Gospel Coalition Conference last year, and, and uh, the, the uh, pastor's wives went to a women's conference here a month or so ago. We, a, we go to conferences waiting to, wanting to hear something new, something profound, something that's going to change us um, eternally. Yet there's something about 
preaching of the word Sunday in and Sunday out from a familiar, um, uh, very human uh, pastor that doesn't seem to be the same. And I have to ask myself why. That I, I've, I've felt that same thing even when I'm sitting here on Sunday morning when somebody else is preaching. It's like, you know, I, I pray for that preacher. Um, I, I actually, at some level, I actually ask God to, uh, to change me. But I'm, but I'm really, um, it's becoming really um, familiar to me. That that's what we do every, every week. And my, my question to you, and I guess my, my encouragement to you this morning is that, um, is that God, I know, um, if you're open, if your heart is soft, um, has something for you this morning. That he, he wants you to walk away with, your, with a greater understanding of the sufficiency and the power of his word. And the way that he uses the Sunday morning service to, uh, to uh, remind you of both your sin and, more importantly, of his grace. So as we wind down this short but powerful book called 2 Timothy, Paul's second letter to Timothy, we've got two more weeks, we've got two more Sundays after today, we're reminded that Paul wrote this to Timothy in a dark, damp, cold prison cell on death row in Rome. This very much is Paul's last uh, will and testament. And he's, he's given it to Timothy so that we would have it today. Paul is resolved at this moment in the, his last writing, his last recorded writing, he's resolved that his life by God's grace has counted and that he has, in fact, ran the race well. We've titled this sermon, um, Running the Race or Finishing the Race, and that we are all in a race. And the, the starting line was when we were born. And the finish line is when we're face-to-face with Jesus, whether he comes back or whether we die first before he comes back. That, that's, that's, the, that's the finish line where we're going to hit that tape and hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. And I ask myself the question, if Paul had a mission statement, our church has a mission statement, it's to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. If Paul had a mission statement, I think it would be Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And he says this, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What he's saying there, it's the power of God for salvation for everybody, regardless of political party, regardless of gender, regardless of nationality or ethnicity, regardless of how great their sins were in the past or how great their sins are in the future, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I believe that would be his, that would be his mission statement. That he is so passionate about the word of God that he gave his life to it. It was his life work. In this short letter to Timothy, this second letter to Timothy, there are 36 references to the true gospel in this short letter. There are 17 references to false teachings. Paul must want Timothy to get a certain message and for us to get a certain message. Paul's primary encouragement to Timothy is to guard the word, to proclaim the word, or the deposit, as he called it, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why would he hit this so hard? Why would, would Paul, of all the things that Paul could talk about in his last days, why would he talk about the sufficiency of God's word and the importance for Timothy and others that go after him to guard it 
and to proclaim it. Well, we're going to see that very clearly in verses 3 through 4 today. And let me just read it. And we were reminded this back in chapter 3 as well, where, where Paul told Timothy that in the last days, people will become um, lovers of pleasure more than they are loves, lovers of God. And then today in verse 3, it says, for a time is coming. A time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but they'll have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Today we live in a time and age, a day and age, where we've got so much information coming at us. We've got so many sermons, so many teachings uh, coming at us through podcasts and through good books and through the internet and through great churches on every block. It's actually hard to discern what's good teaching and what's bad teaching. And I want to encourage you this morning that it's going to be really easy for you to think through other people. Yeah, I, I, the person in the youth group really needs to hear this. I wish my, my father could have heard this, or I wish my neighbor could have heard this. But I want to tell you that if you think that way before you leave that door, that you've missed what God has for you today. The first question to ask is, God, what do you want to teach me? What do you have for me today in the way of conviction and encouragement? Because we, after all, are the people that Paul is writing to. Yes, he's writing to Timothy. Yes, he's writing to pastors, but this is for um, everyone. Let's start off in verse one. Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. This charge that Paul has given Timothy follows um, chapter three, verses 16 and 17. It's the very next words. He says, I charge you. And, and he's charging them on the heels of chapter 3 where he says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. We talked about this last week, and I want to hit it again, that Moses, after, after the, the Israelites were delivered from oppression and slavery in Egypt, after they were delivered and they went into the, the wilderness, that God gave them the commandments, the law, his word. And this is what Moses said to the Israelites who, after they had been saved, and, and the word is actually a tutor to those who don't know Jesus Christ, but it's actually a lamp unto our feet for those who know Jesus Christ. And Moses says this, take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may, be, they may be careful to do all the words of the law. For it is no empty word for you, but it is your very life. Do we often think through God's word that way, that it's our very life, that you can't live without it? When Jesus began his ministry and was tempted by Satan, his complete knowledge of the word enabled him to defeat the tempter with three quotations from Deuteronomy. Jesus Christ, God incarnate, learned, leaned on the sufficiency of Scripture in his hour of need. Indeed, his summary response to the tempter was like a book into Moses' declaration that the Scriptures are your life. For Jesus insisted that they are the soul's essential food. He wrote this in Matthew 4.4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, the scriptures were life and the food for both Moses and Jesus. 
They cannot be. They must not be anything less to us. It dawned on me as I was frustrated this morning, and this hand's cramping because I'm not typing with this hand really well, and it dawned on me that all the time and the money that we spent, that we spend trying to be healthy, diets, reading labels, subscribing to uh, magazines on health, belonging to gyms, those, are, those aren't inherently bad, unless you rip your bicep off your forearm, then it becomes bad. But, but in comparison to, to what's eternal, that what Moses and Jesus said is that it's the word of God that is the, our very life. It's our food. And in comparison, how much time do we spend ingesting the life-changing word of God and expecting it to change us? Expecting us, expecting it to change us. He charges Timothy to preach the living Active word of God. Here's what a charge is. A charge is, is from the, a Greek word that has legal connotations and can mean to testify under oath in a court of law or to instruct the witness to do so. Paul's charge is addressed in the first instance to Timothy and then to all of the pastors since Timothy and then to really to every one of us. And what he's saying to Timothy is, I swear, he says, Timothy, say this, I swear to tell the truth and nothing but the truth. So help me God. Preach the word. Don't preach yourself. Don't preach a song. Don't preach a book. Preach the word. The word of God is the only truth administered by the Holy Spirit that can change a human being's direction from a life towards hell to a life towards eternal life in Christ Jesus. Paul makes his charge to Timothy by reminding them that he is to conduct himself under the gaze of God and Christ. That it is Christ Jesus, not those around him, whether those around him are opponents or faithful believers. It's, it's Jesus Christ, not those around him who will ultimately judge or evaluate him. And this is not a judge in a condemnation kind of way. Jesus was judged so that Timothy would never be judged. That Jesus was judged so that if you put your faith in Christ, you will never be judged. And this, this statement is meant to do more to, is meant to deter Timothy from striving to please or fear people and motivate him to faithfully preach the word before an eschatological, easy for me to say, in time, an audience of one. It's to motivate him to preach the word before an audience of one. And, what, and if, if you have ever been up in front of people in any context, you know the fear. As you look at people you know and you love and you want them to like you and to esteem you and to approve you. But that is not the goal that Paul is telling Timothy to preach the word. I charge you to preach the word. As if you're preaching to God the Father and Jesus Christ alone. The one who come to judge the living and the dead. The one who come to set up his eternal kingdom. Romans eleven thirty six. Paul says this. says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Paul knows that, that whatever he has to offer the congregation is the word and it's from God. And the power to preach it comes from God. 
And it's all for God's glory. You see, the king and his kingdom are then the ultimate reality with which Timothy should be concerned. It's all about King Jesus. It's all about building his kingdom on earth while waiting for his glorious return to establish his final kingdom. Preach to an audience of one. Preach the word. What does it mean to preach? It's like a herald. It's a messenger proclaiming the truth. It's, a, it's, a, it's like the crier in the streets of old. Even though Paul's constant emphasis throughout this letter, I shouldn't say even though, his emphasis throughout this letter has been on the priority of God's word. Paul told Timothy not to be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. Hold fast to the pattern of sound words. The things that you've heard from me, God's word, commit these to faithful men. Rightly divide the word of truth. A servant of the Lord must be able to teach God's word. All scripture is God-breathed. You see, as a pastor, Timothy was not required to merely study the word. He wasn't required to merely know the word. He wasn't required to merely like the word or to approve the word. He was required to preach the word. The all-sufficient, God-breathed word that saves and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God would be complete and equipped for every good work. Preach the Bible, he's saying to Timothy. Preach the Bible. Don't preach yourself. And I can just hear Timothy ask him, well, when? This kind of gets tiring week after week. What if I don't feel like it? What if people aren't changing? What if people aren't listening? He says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. In season and out of season. In other words, whether you feel like it or not, Timothy, whether the hearts you're preaching to are hard or soft, when it's convenient for you or inconvenient for you. Sowing the seeds of life-changing scripture in summer or winter to soft ground or hard ground. Preach it, Timothy, regardless of the audience, regardless of the climate of receptivity. Preach it. You know what? There's only two seasons to preach the word, in season and out of season. I want to be really careful here. I think I preached my first sermon maybe 10 years ago. Started doing this more regularly maybe five, six years ago. I probably preached 100 sermons-ish, something like that. It's hard, actually. There's, there's no greater privilege. There's like nothing I'd rather do. I wouldn't go back to being a stockbroker. I wouldn't go back to um, owning a business. I feel this, there's nothing greater than proclaiming and preaching God's word. But there's nothing harder, actually, than knowing if it's taken any effect at all. I see some of you, like, I'm friends with, and I do life up close, and go, wow, praise God, they're growing. Probably not as a result of Sunday morning, but they're growing. You don't get a chance to see the hearts. There's not a lot of um, affirmation, quite frankly, nor is there a lot of criticism. Do not want a text today affirming me or criticizing me. And you wonder, you ask the question, is it making a difference? You're keenly aware of the mistakes you make after you, after you go home. Keenly aware. 
Sinclair Ferguson, some of you know him, he's a giant of a preacher. I love, love this man, and he said this. He said, 40 years exactly have passed since my first sermon in the context of a Sunday service. Four decades is a long time to have amassed, amassed occasions when going to the church door after preaching is the last thing one wants to do. Even if one loves a congregation, sometimes precisely because one loves a congregation, and therefore the sense of failure is all the greater. How often have I had to ask myself, Sinclair says, how is it possible to have done this thousands of times and still not do it properly? He goes on to say, yes, I know how to talk myself out of that mood. It's faithfulness, not skill, that really matters. How you feel has nothing to do with it. Remember, you're sowing seed. It's ultimately the Lord who preaches the word into people's hearts, not you. All true. Yet we are responsible to make progress as preachers, indeed evident and visible, or at least audible progress. I love that. And I remember somebody interviewed John Piper after he retired from the pulpit at Bethlehem Baptist. And this is a paraphrase. You're going to have to Google it. And uh, don't post it on Facebook that I messed it up. But this is the, this is the gist of it, where, where Piper said there wasn't a sermon. There wasn't a sermon that he didn't regret that he, and wished that he would have said something differently. John Piper. It gives me such great hope. Such great hope. Paul says, be ready. Be ready. He says, be ready in season and out of season. Be ready means instant. It means urgent. He says, be ready because it's urgent. Don't just fall asleep. It's like we, what we do every Sunday. This is, this is both valuable and it's urgent. That we are living in the gap. That one day Jesus will come back to judge the living and the dead. One day Jesus will come back to consummate his kingdom. In the meantime, the word of God has got to be proclaimed and preached because it's the word of God by the spirit of God in the context of the people of God that actually changes us. So what we do on Sunday morning, what happens in community groups, what happens in heart-to-heart, women's Bible study, everywhere else where the word of God is open and proclaimed is of utmost importance. He goes on to say, after saying preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. In preaching God's word, the herald, the messenger, is to rebuke, is to reprove and exhort with complete patience and teaching. The negative side of these, of these uh, imperatives is, is repu- reproving and rebu- rebuking. Reprove means to correct something that is wrong, unbiblical thinking. To rebuke brings a warning of the consequences of that wrong direction. We shouldn't be afraid to talk about sin. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that we are not to judge outsiders, actually those who are outside the faith. But we are to rightly judge one another. Not before, not try to take the, the speck out of someone else's eye before we have the log out of our own eye. But Scripture, the proclamation of Scripture, reproves, it corrects uh, unbiblical thinking or actions, and it rebukes where it warns of, of the consequences of the direction that one might be on. The goal and purpose of correction of any kind is repentance and restoration. That's the goal. Helping someone see their sin and then turning them around. 
In fact, the, the pastor that reproves and rebukes requires that he not be a people pleaser or popularity seeker. If you've ever had to bring um, rebuke or reprove somebody, it is, for, for most of it, it's a, most of it's a scary thing because we know we can lose a friendship. We know we can be, we can be heard wrong. And what it requires is that you not fear people and you not be a people pleaser. But here's the next thing that it requires, and it's more importantly, important. It requires that we have no interior joy in setting other people straight. That Christians are to rebuke and reprove. The preacher up front with the word of God is to reprove and rebuke. But we should take no joy in that. That's why Paul requires, <clears throat> excuse me, the third imperative. Exhort with complete patience and teaching. To exhort is an appeal. It's an appeal to, to encourage someone or to help someone move forward. And, and then to, to teach them is to help them understand maybe the sin beneath their sin. Clarifying or applying God's word to help others understand and think differently and to live their lives more righteously by being more firmly rooted in God's word. You see, as a pastor, and I don't think I do this well, we must come along, alongside the congregation with encouraging words. That's right. Come along. You're doing fine. You're making progress. I've got an acronym that, that I use oftentimes in, in um, hard counseling cases where, where, where we've asked them to do some things and they come back the next week and we want to see how did they do. And it's the acronym WIN, W. What went well last week? I, what can you improve on? And N, what might we do differently next time? It's encouraging. It's not beating them up. And in doing this, in doing this, we're called to have immense patience because we rarely see quick results. God said the work that he's begun in us, in me and you, he will bring to completion. And he'll bring that to completion when we're face to face with Jesus. In the meantime, all of us have a trajectory and that trajectory is toward heaven. And I've confessed this to the other pastors and I think at some level they're in the same boat is that Man, I just want people to change. I want to change like this. I want you to change like this. Don't want any sin and ugliness in the church. But Paul wouldn't give this imperative to exhort with patience and teaching. If people were to change instantaneously, we wouldn't need patience if people were to change instantly. Reproof and rebuke must be teamed up with careful exhortation and patient teaching or it will be unprofitable. Let me read Galatians 6, 1 through 5. I think, I think for what, November 12th, this is my favorite verse in November. It changes like every month. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, any sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Whatever sin it is that you are correcting, 
Whatever sin it is that you're patiently um, um, teaching, you're not above it. You, you are prone potentially to the same sin. Keep watch on yourself, he says, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens. Come alongside the, the one that's, that's marred in sin. So the faithful, so, so to fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he has something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. And my prayer is that WCC would be bo- both be a place where the word is preached straight up, where we, will, we, re- we rebuke and we reprove with the word. But our in desire is not rebuking and it's not reproof. But to help people, to help one another turn from our old ways and patiently teach you to move forward in a different direction towards Jesus Christ. You know, it's not just enough to tell people how to live. Loving shepherds patiently teach those in need of reproof and rebuke the why behind the what. And it's one of the things, it's the main thing I love about this church, other than it's Christ's church and his people, because this is a gospel-centered church. And that every single Sunday, If you don't hear the gospel, if you don't hear about the grace of God, every single Sunday, whoever's preaching, me at the beginning, you need to text. Say, didn't catch the gospel today. Didn't catch the gospel today. Timothy Keller has this one sentence that summarizes the gospel. It's what you and I need to be reminded of every Sunday in the preaching of the word. And here it is. You are more sinful than you ever dare imagine. Comma. And you are more loved and accepted than you ever dare hope. Those twin truths. To be reminded that we are all sinners in need of a Savior But the reminder that because of God's grace, because of his love, that he no longer sees us as sinners. 150 years ago, Charles Spurgeon said this, a sermon without Christ at its beginning, middle, and end is a mistake in conception and a crime in execution. However grand the language it will be, however grand the language, it will be merely much ado about nothing if Christ be not there. And I mean by Christ, not merely his example, not just follow after Christ, and not just his ethical precepts of his teaching, but his atoning blood, his wondrous satisfaction made for human sin in the grand doctrine of believe and live. A sermon must always offer the congregation Christ over and over again. So a sermon should accomplish three things, and you should ask for it. I want the sermon, the word of God, to show me my sin. Number two, I want the sermon to remind me of God's grace. And number three, I want the sermon to spur me on to love and good deeds. So why the urgency? Why why the charge to, to preach the word in season and out? It's in verses three and four. For a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. 
They'll have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth, and they'll wander off into myths. There's two, two um, contrasting truths in this passage, in, in verses 3 and 4. They're saying the same thing. Verse 3 is saying the same thing as verse 4. In verse 3, people will not endure sound teaching, but will accumulate teachers to suit their own passions. In verse 4, they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You see, Paul is writing to Timothy and the church in Ephesus. This is a letter to those who are professing faith in Jesus Christ. This is a letter to you and I. Paul had warned Timothy that in the last days, back in chapter 3, that people will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They would have an appearance of godliness but no power. Uh, Pastor Chris taught us a few weeks ago from chapter 3. And he reminded us that, that Paul writing to Timothy was in the last days. When he was talking about in the coming last days, there will be a time. That's today. That was 2,000 years ago, and that's today. That's in the gap between Jesus' resurrection and ascension, and then when he comes back again. The last times are a present reality for you and I. Yes, tomorrow we'll be closer to that last day than we are today, but today and tomorrow are the last days. So when Paul says the time is coming, he means if you haven't already experienced it, Timothy, you will. Paul is saying actually that this is us. This is us. The people I'm talking about are you and I. For, for the time is coming where people will not endure sound teaching. This is us. This is us at Windsor Community Church. This is Dan Hardy. This is what we're prone to. You see, people, you and I, we will, we will tend to disagree with the Bible when we don't understand it. And we'll point out that there's something wrong with it. Instead of asking what's wrong with our thinking, we ask what's wrong with the Bible. The people that Paul is talking about, you and I, these are people that instead of assuming that we're wrong, we assume the Bible is wrong or outdated or irrelevant. You see, this is a problem. Whenever our brilliant minds disagree with this book, we start seeking out teachers. We start seeking out authors and podcasters who teach what the Bible doesn't so we can be comforted in our current thinking instead of being changed by God's word. You see, these Christians that Paul is talking about, which is you and I at, at, at different times, well, excuse me, will not endure teaching from God's word that they don't want to believe. Instead, they find teachers who support their point of view or tickle the ears with what they want to hear. Whenever I disagree with this book, there's times where there's hard truths where it's like, man, I don't want to believe that. Honestly. Whenever I, I don't agree with this book, I assume that I'm wrong and the Bible is right. That's the foundation. You've got to assume. We see dimly. We don't see it in its entirety. I've got to assume when I'm starting to doubt that or I go, wow, God, that's heavy, that he's right and I'm wrong and I'm going to submit to it. And these people will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Myths are fables or ideologies, things that we want to believe that aren't in the Bible. I've, I, I think what it's referring to, I've heard oftentimes, is that, you know what, can we just have some meat? 
I'm tired about hearing the gospel of grace Sunday after Sunday. Can we get to the deeper things? All the deeper things that we need to know launch out of the gospel. They turn away from listening to the truth. They wander off in the myths, ideologies that they want to believe. They, they, they run to teachers that are, that are coming to new understanding of God's word. Whenever you hear a preacher that has a new understanding of a particular passage that no other commentary that has ever been written in the last 2,000 years agrees with, run! Run! Don't walk. Now, I believe that God can bring um, new, like, understanding and revelation to my heart, that he says that the word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. What that means is that you can read a passage a hundred times, and then he can teach you differently on the hundredth time than he did the first time. But it's the same truth. Let me talk about some prevailing myths today that are being taught. The absence of hell. It's a myth. That a loving God would not send anybody to hell or allow anybody to go to hell. It's a myth. The prosperity gospel, it's a myth. That there's no guarantee that just because you um, obey God and do everything right that you're going to have a blessed and prosperous life. Another myth is that obedience is optional. That since we're saved by grace, we'll go live any way we want. Paul says in Romans that should we continue sinning that grace may abound? He says, may it never be. That's a myth. And there's just, there's a whole litany of myths that come from relative truth. We're in a postmodern, post-Christian time where there are Preachers that at one point were gospel-centered that are starting to waver on foundational truths that have been believed for 2,000 years because of the culture we live in. They're caving on things like homosexuality, divorce, women in the pulpit. Paul warned Timothy that many would not put up with sound teaching or healthy doctrine but would desire for the preacher to say what their itching ears want to hear. By nature, we all want that. Do we not? We want the sermon to make us feel better about ourselves, to boost our self-esteem, to reinforce our pre-existing prejudices. And what I want you to feel good about every Sunday is that there is a God who gave himself up so that you would never suffer the penalty for your sin that you deserve. And that because he has declared you innocent by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, you've been adopted into his forever family. And you're forever loved and accepted by him. Brothers and sisters, we need to sit under the word in humility, not over it in judgment. It's God's word. Therefore, we must be ready to adjust our opinions and our beliefs, our hearts and our lives in submission to this. We don't come to the preaching of God's word to be entertained or to have our brain cells tickled by intellectual displays or to have our emotions swayed by manipulative oratory. Neither of those two things happen when I'm up here. 
because I'm not intellectual, nor am I an orator. We're here to, we come to hear, to worship, and to obey. What struck me is that uh, this, is, uh, this is how, this is, Paul is charging Timothy to preach the word, but a question for us today is how do we listen to a sermon? How do we listen to a sermon? Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. We've got two, we've got six core pursuits here at Windsor Community Church, and the first two are, one of them is encounter God in his word. Encounter him in his word. And second is intimacy with the Lord, pursue intimacy with the Lord. That his word is not to get stuck in our heads, but go to our heart and change us. Let me give you some others on how to listen to a sermon. Come in Sunday morning expecting to be changed. How many of you do that? Expecting to be changed. Ask the Lord how he wants to further conform you into his image through the scriptures. Here's one. I won't make eye contact with anybody. Take notes. Take notes. Some of you have minds that can remember this, but take notes. Um, After the sermon, ruminate on it. Remember what ruminate is? Take it in, chew it. Chew it. Swallow it. Get into your car like a cow. Burp it back up. Chew on it some more. Discuss it. Drive home. Sit at the dinner table. Burp it back up. Talk about it again. Ruminate on it. Discuss it. Re-listen to it. They're online. Listen to it. Examine the scriptures to see if they're true, as Paul said the noble Bereans did in Acts chapter 6, I think. 11? Acts. But don't, don't take my word for it. Don't pay Pat's or Chris's or John's word for it. Examine the scriptures to see if they're true. And next is be prepared to discuss it at community group. Most of your community groups discuss the sermon. Be prepared to discuss it. And it just dawned on me, pastors, this is something we need to talk about, is that we really need to let you know what the passage that's going to be taught is next week so that you can read it and discuss it and ruminate on it ahead of time. Three questions I would encourage you to ask as you're listening to a sermon. Who are you, Lord? Who am I? And how do you want me to respond? And he finishes up in verse 5, as for you, Timothy. As for you, Timothy, you're one of the people I'm talking about. You're not, you're not above it. Don't be like that. Instead, be sober-minded, be alert, be watchful, pay attention to sound doctrine. Endure suffering. You get criticism, endure it. There's no, there's no affirmation, endure it. People leave the church because of, 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 uh, of whatever, the way you part your hair, the way you speak, the way you snort, um, um, endure it. Do the work of an evangelist that is preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to unbelievers and believers alike. 
Remember, preach the gospel that, that you and the people that you're preaching to are more sinful than they could ever dare imagine, but they're more loved and accepted than they could ever hope for. Fulfill your ministry, Timothy. Preach the word. Don't be ashamed of the word. Rightly handle the word. The word of God is not bound. You can't hold it back. You can't blow it. You can't blow it, Timothy. And finally, in fulfilling your ministry, Timothy, make sure that you allow the word to penetrate deeply into your heart before you teach it to others. There's nothing harder for me, and there shouldn't be anything harder for you, for me to preach the word when I haven't been changed by it. You want to sit under the teaching of the word by men that are submitting themselves to the Holy Word and asking God to change them. So I want to encourage you as we close and pray here, pray for your pastors. Pray for us. Pray that we would, we would accept the charge, that we would do it before an audience of one, that we wouldn't be people pleasers, that we wouldn't fear you, want to be liked by you. That we would rebuke, we would reprove, that we would exhort and patiently teach and pray for yourselves. My prayer for you and for me is that you would hunger and thirst for God's word that you would not be able to survive a day without feeding on God's word. And that when you would leave here, that you would ruminate on it. You'd chew it up. You'd burp it up. You'd share some with your wife and your kids. And you'd all chew it together. There's a picture that's never going to leave your head. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we uh, bless you that... Um, that you are in the business, if I may, of changing lives. And I thank you for the glorious gospel. I thank you for the twin truth that we are more sinful than we ever dare imagine. But we are more loved than we ever thought possible. And God, I pray that those twin truths would uh, drive us to live lives of worship. I pray, God, that those truths would, um, would drive us deeper into your word, to want to encounter you in new and fresh ways in your living and active word, and to further foster the relationship of intimacy that you saved us for. And I thank you that you didn't just save us for heaven one day, but you saved us for a thriving, vibrant intimate relationship right now here today. So thank you. We praise you and we worship you. And God's people said,